0: Good to have you here this morning. I don't have a message, God, for you today. That's okay. If you have your Bible, open to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Next, uh, next weekend, we're going to set in some new elders, and I'm not going to go over the scriptures uh, today, specifically dealing with qualifications and all of that. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll cover all that next week, and then uh, also, just for your information, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, we had our first 101 class um, last Saturday. We'll have another 101 class coming up th- at the end of this month. And I really would encourage, whether you've taken the past 101, we're really encouraging everyone uh, to take the new class. It's, it's quite a bit different than the old 101 class, uh, and it deals a lot more with specific things to this, to this congregation or this body of believers. And part of that um, class list all the qualifications for offices and, and how we're governed as a church and, and and all of those things and what we believe about that. And, and, uh, and so it would um, really be to your benefit to take advantage of that. And one of the things we talk about in this class is that ultimately, one of your greatest responsibilities as a congregation is the doctrine of the church. That... Y- y- y'all remember on May 21st, we were all supposed to be raptured out of here, but y'all notice well, me and my wife were, but we came back. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyways, uh, you-, you notice we're all still here, right? Yeah. And you wonder how uh, a fellow like that is able to deceive millions of people. Well, I'll tell you how. And, and honestly, I don't really put the fault on him. I-, I put the fault on all the people that believed his lie. And, and I don't even think the guy maliciously lied. He's just deceived. And the reason people followed that deception is because they didn't take responsibility for the doctrine of the church. They didn't take responsibility for what they believed. In other words, they never they never got into the Word of God and really found out or examined his teachings against the truth of Scripture. Um, and so one of your responsibilities is is to make sure that what I'm preaching and teaching to you is in accordance with that word. Not to just believe everything I say because I'm the pastor and I'm standing behind an aluminum pulpit up here. Our final authority in everything, whether we're standing behind a pulpit or whether we're sitting in a chair, our final authority is the scripture right here. And we all... All of us, regardless of our calling, regardless of our position, our function, all of us have to come under the submission to this word. And that is, I believe, the chief responsibility of those that are set in as leaders, the Bible calls elders or bishops or overseers, shepherds, pastors, that that is their chief function is to make sure that the doctrine of the church is sound, is, is according to truth, lines up with this word right here. And so, um, I want to read to you First Timothy chapter 1. Let's, let's just begin in verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Now, why was Paul an apostle? Because he just decided one day he wanted to be an apostle. Now, he says, I'm an apostle by the commandment of God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ. To Timothy, a true son in the faith. Notice how he qualifies a true son. There can be false sons if there are true sons, right? Just like Jesus in John 15 said, I am the true vine. Well, there can be false vines if there is a true vine. Well, we don't want to be a false son, and we don't want to be uh, abiding in a false vine. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews says, if you're legitimate sons, God will discipline you. And we live in a culture today in which discipline is a dirty word because we just don't like it because it, it steps on our toes, it really communicates that I'm not the one in charge if I am being disciplined by somebody that is above me that means I'm not I'm not the one ultimately in charge and so but legitimate sons the bible says are disciplined by their father the writer of hebrews says you are legitimate sons in jesus christ praise god that's good news church it really is good news that those things are put in the scripture Because it provides safety for us. Leaders are set in the church because it provides safety for us. Doctrine was recorded and preserved by the Holy Spirit and by faithful men of God who who recorded those doctrines for the safety of the church so that we won't just be led astray and tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine because we have a sure hope, we have something solid, we have something absolute, we have a plumb line that, that indicates where where we're supposed to be, where we're supposed to be building and what we're supposed to be doing. And so he goes on, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Verse 5, now the purpose. Now, when, when the Bible tells us what the purpose of something is, it's really important for us to pay attention, I believe. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Now I'm going to stop right there and I want to... I want to read something to you. We're going to come back to the purpose um, a little bit later, but I, I want to read something. I was, um, I don't know who this person is, but I found it an interesting little series of articles that this guy, his name is Mike Friesen. And Mike is a young adult who describes himself as a recovering Christian. Um, And he's not anti-Christ. He's not anti-faith. This is just where this guy is, and he's writing this blog about where he is, and he's pondering some big questions, and I thought it was uh, kind of interesting. When I was in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, this topic came up about the statistics vary, and you'll you'll see that there's a statistic thrown out in this little page I'm going to read to you in just a moment. But But it's safe to say that anywhere from um, two-thirds to um, some as high as seven-eighths, that's under 20 in this room right now. The statistics are pretty consistent that anywhere from seven to nine out of ten of you, when you grow up and leave your parents' home, you will also leave the church. That's not a... um, it's not an unheard of thing, It's, but, but there are less and less, fewer and fewer of you who are returning to the church after you mature a little bit, and like they used to say in the old days, sow your wild oats and all that stuff. Personally, I don't think that uh, people have to do that, nor should they do that. Uh, again, if we follow what the Scripture declares, but some will, even if Parents do follow what the Scripture declares. Uh, well, let me read this to you. It's a, kind of an interesting little thing. Why the church is losing my generation. This is part one of like a four or five part thing he, he wrote. in and and, uh, Anyways, being a young adult is difficult in this day and age. If it isn't difficult enough going through one of the largest sociological changes in the way we think, relate, and create... And we have to cope with the fact that we will never make as much money as Snooky or the situation. Now, if you know who Snooky and the situation is, you probably see, I have no clue who Snooky and the situation is. But some of you probably do. Uh, while the driving forces, with the driving forces of social media, financial crisis, and other contributing factors, we are experiencing one of the greatest transitions in history. And this has hit the church very hard. More than 80% of young adult Christians who attend church during high school, at least bimonthly, have stopped altogether. Numbers show that while this is a normal cultural trend that people tend not to go back to church until they have families or get married, even this number is dropping off significantly. I myself have been part of this group. Part of this is because I am highly introverted. And after spending time each week with the relationships with my job, relaying back and forth with people in the uh, in the nonprofit that I'm blessed to be a part of and doing my best to maintain and grow the relationships I am in, I have very little social energy left in me. Another reason is the fact that I am a recovering Christian. I have found myself bouncing from church to church on and off for years. While I believe that the church has far more good than bad in it, there is some of that bad taste in my mouth. I believe there are four reasons why people are leaving the church these days. Relational driving forces, substance problems. He's not talking about substance abuse. He's talking about are we preaching substance or are we just giving people a bunch of fluff? Um, apathy and anger or cynicism. On top of all these reasons, my generation has a growing disgust with religious institutions, and because of this, it is not developing any identity in any religious system, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, etc. In other words, people are becoming so disillusioned with religion... They probably should, if we just be honest. But but what's happening is they're just they're not embracing anything. Which which is again it's not necessarily a bad thing. If you realize what Jesus said, rather be hot or cold, right? So they've not developed any identity in any religious system. This is why, in my opinion, there has been a radical shift to a not religious but spiritual mindset in my generation. And that's true. It's not that people don't believe in God. It's not that people don't look to or value or are intrigued by spiritual things. But do you see there's, there's a shift taking place? It's not that everyone's becoming atheist, but we're departing orthodoxy. We're departing the Scripture And we're embracing all kinds of things, just a mixture. As well, there has been a radical shift in the mindset toward the the God we are in relationship with. Christian Smith did the church a great favor when he found that my generation believes that God is moralistic, therapeutic deism. You get that? God is moralistic, therapeutic deism. Albert Moeller expounds on this. He explains what this really means. Moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like these. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I think the vast majority of people on earth believe that. We would believe that, right? We're Christians. We claim to believe in orthodoxy. We believe that there is a God who created... And ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I mean, we don't not believe that, but we don't stop there. Number two, moralistic therapeutic deism says that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Oh, you're a Christian? Great. I'm a Buddhist. We all worship the same God. We all teach the same things. And we... We boil it all down to this moralistic soup that we can all come around and partake of and no one be offended. Number three, moralistic therapeutic deism says the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Well, we all want to be happy and we all want to feel good about ourselves. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy and wanting to feel good about yourself. The problem is, that's not the point of what this word is communicating. And that's not the point of the gospel. It is... Now, see, I'm commentating now, and I just wanted to read this to you. That can be a benefit. It can be a byproduct. But it's not the intent. It's not the chief reason. And we've turned... We've turned being happy and feeling good about ourselves into a chief reason. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. It's what I call the spiritual 911 syndrome. God is my spiritual 911. I don't need him until I need him. But according to the scripture, when do we not need him? See, we may live life thinking we don't need him, but it's really just an illusion that we don't need him. Number five, therapeutic, moral, moralistic therapeutic deism says good people go to heaven when they die. These are things that we all want to believe, in, and it's very convenient for us to embrace. This is what the world is, this is what our spirituality is morphing into. Now, it's nothing new. These are not new things. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So none of these things are new. People have believed such things since the beginning of of the human race. I, I really believe that. Many of these views don't make God very interactive and do not cooperate with much of church history, the writer says. Well, they don't cooperate with the scripture either. With all of this happening, it's not hard to see why the church is losing my generation We either give up on faith altogether, he's talking about his generation, we either give up on faith altogether, or we stay a Christian but aren't a part of any form of community, I'll endure because I don't want to go to hell, or we are amongst a very rare few who are happily engaged. Then he asked some questions there, which I won't go into, but I thought that was kind of an interesting, um, I think it, it probably is a pretty fair description of where a lot of people are. Now, he's talking about his generation. He's talking about young adults, but I'm going to tell you what, uh, it's not just young adults. Now Everybody's alarmed about the statistic about young adults, but it's not just young adults. It's old adults, too. A recent study by a guy named Brent Beamer, who was formerly a senior fellow at the uh, uh, Heritage Foundation, uh, just did a study. In, in, in I have not read the book, so I'm not advocating the book. But this information, this quote, comes from a study by him and a, a fellow named Kent Ham. Kent Ham, if you he's the guy who there's a program called Answers in Genesis, I believe he's a creation scientist, and, and uh, he partnered with this guy Brent Beamer in in wrote a book, which is basically about, I can't remember the name of the book. I'm sorry I didn't write it down. But uh, basically what Brent Beamer and Kent Hammer are saying, you're not losing your kids in college when they go to college because professors are teaching them evolution. You've lost them in elementary school. And it's not because, I'm not going to put it on the public school system because it's not the public school system's fault. Because it's not the public school system's responsibility to raise our children. It's our responsibility to raise our children. It's not the church's responsibility to raise your children. It's your responsibility to raise your children. But somehow in our culture, we bought into this idea that public schools are supposed to teach our kids and and do all this stuff. And then if I send my kids to public school for 12 years, then they're going to grow up and they're going to be model citizens. Really? Or if I send my kid to church every week and make him go. Man, when we used to run the bus, we had parents that would send their kid. and they would make their kids come on Wednesday night. But do you think those parents would be in church? Uh-uh. But they wanted that kid to be here. Now, did they really want them to be here because they wanted that child to learn something? Or maybe they just wanted those kids out of their hair, out of the house, so they could uninterruptedly do whatever they want to do. I don't know. But we have a lot more kids coming without their parents than with their parents. Parents, you can make your kids go to church every week, multiple times a week, and and you're not doing them any favors because it's not a magic bullet by doing that. So this recent study finds that two-thirds, their number is two-thirds, the other number was 80%. There's numbers as high as 96%. Two-thirds of young people now regularly attending, not bimonthly, but they regularly attend evangelical churches. These are churches that supposedly believe in the inerrancy of the Scripture. These are people that profess not to just believe in God, but these are people who profess to be born again. These are born-again believers. They're saying that two-thirds of young people now regularly attending evangelical churches will leave the church when they move into their 20s. The study finds the church youth already are lost in their hearts and minds in elementary, middle, and high school, not in college, as many assume. Now, why is that? Well, I have a lot of opinions, but everybody has an opinion, right? Let's go back to these five points that I found real interesting, this what's called moralistic therapeutic deism This first point, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. What kind of God is that? It's a God that's uninvolved in his creation. So he got the ball spinning and then he just kind of steps back and lets it go. And if he needs to step in, he'll step in and give it a twist every now and then. That's not the God of the Bible. How about this? God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Well, I think it's true that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, but we need to understand <laughs> what that means and, and why is it God wants us to be that and, and where does that come from? And if we're not careful, what we're going to adopt is this moralistic relativism instead of salvation by grace. God's not just a God of moralistic relativism. He's a God of absolute truth. So we believe in a truth that is absolute. It's not relative. I'm not going to just become a drop that's going to be absorbed into the, you know, the ocean of humanity or like the Buddhists believe. We get to come back and do it again if we don't get it quite right the first time. So it's not, it's not a moralistic relativism, it's, it's an absolute truth that we believe in. Or this, this notion that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Do you know what that is? That says, I am God and I am the center of my universe, and life revolves around me. And we sang a song earlier, it was the last song we sang, I believe... Before we did communion, it was the hill song in, in one of the verses it says, "Break my heart for what breaks yours. God break my heart for what breaks yours. Does our heart break for the things that breaks god God's heart? When we come to this building and we assemble together as we sing our songs, are we thinking about what I'm not getting, what I'm not experiencing, how this is not doing something for me? Or even right now, as you listen to my voice, are you thinking, well, I'm just not really getting much out of this message. You know, I should have gone to that other church I started to go to today. I probably would have been had a lot more fun. Is it about coming and having fun? Is life about... Is it about my happiness and about how I feel about myself? Those are, I'm not saying those are not important. Those are important things. But that's not why God saved us, and that's not why we're here, and that's not the mission we've been called to. That's not why God has preserved and entrusted this word to us. It's not. And if we are only looking to find our joy and our fulfillment and and get our jollies on the things we can experience out here, we've missed the whole point of why God has saved us. We've missed the whole point of why God has created us, that he has created us so that we could enjoy him, so that we could glory in him, not so that we would be glorified, but, but we glory in him, in his glory. And God has privileged us. Even as we took communion, it was said today that we have been given the privilege to come to that table. What does that table represent? We've been given the privilege to partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. To actually become bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Is that where you find your joy? These people that are vacating and leaving the church, they're they not finding their joy there. They don't equate God and the church to that. They don't think of the church in that way. And I'm not saying it's their fault. As a matter of fact, I'm saying it's our fault. This is why Paul charged Timothy with what he charged him. This exodus from the institutionalized church is a result of bad doctrine. It's a result of wrong motives. It's the result of plans and methods gone awry. God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. This is not a God who is sovereign. This is a God who is reacting to man. Do you really want to worship a God that reacts to you or do you want to worship a God that is sovereign? Sovereign. You might not know the answer to that question, but I promise you the correct answer is you want to worship a God who is sovereign, not a God who is up in heaven reacting to everything that man is doing. That is not the God you want to worship because he is not a God. He is a figment of man's imagination and a creation of man. That is not the God of the Bible. But yet, our belief systems, that's who we're turning God into. Good people go to heaven when they die. That is the opposite of justification by faith. The Bible says there are no such thing as good people. Romans 3, there are none good, no, not one. That's pretty clear, isn't it? There are no good people that go to heaven. There are only redeemed people that go to heaven. (laughs) That's it. And redeemed people were not redeemed because they were good. Redeemed people are redeemed because Christ is good. God is good, and in his goodness, he redeemed men who were not good. In the near future, I think I'm going to do a series on the justice and the mercy of God. You know what justice says we all deserve, don't you? And none of us, none of us escape. None of us are good enough to escape the justice of God. But God, in His mercy, has allowed some to experience His life, His eternal life, though none of us deserve it. That's salvation by works instead of salvation by grace through faith. So the question I have is, has the church, in a desperate attempt to stem the tide of departure, developed strategies that are contributing to the problem? It's like the guy I met up in Colorado who was amused by the church with all the lights and the fog machine and everything. He thought that was kind of amusing. He, it was actually kind of appealing to him. But, but finally he said, you know, I just don't think I can do that week in and week out. Well, it just took him a little longer to grow tired of it than it does some other people. Some people can do that for years. But the question is, if we're coming for lights and fog machines, we're coming for the wrong reason, aren't we? But you know why some churches have lights and fog machines? Because they're trying to do something about the exodus from Christianity. So, strategies that we develop can place style over substance. It can, play, it can place attraction over truth, or it can place sensual doctrine over sound doctrine. Now, when we use the word sensual, we always think sexual, but sensual doesn't mean sexual. Sensual means fleshly. Sensual doctrine is doctrine that That strokes my flesh, that makes my flesh feel good. Sound doctrine may do that, but generally sound doctrine will discipline my flesh. It keeps me in check. Now, see, the problem is in in the 45 minutes that I have to speak today, and I've only got 15 minutes left... Everything I'm saying really in some ways can have, well, it not can have, it may have to you a negative connotation. Because we're taking all of this and we're condensing it down into this very small section of time in which I'm communicating to you. But the reality is this is the danger. This is why we need the whole counsel of God. Because the point of sound doctrine, though it may discipline my flesh sometimes the the point of it is not for just my discipline the point of discipline is is so that I can be a legitimate son and experience the blessings of my father Jesus said to his disciples just before his arrest and crucifixion I tell you these things that my joy is may remain in you and that your joy may be full. God has written everything and recorded everything in this Bible and has given to us so that ultimately our joy may be full. Well, where is our joy full? It's full in Him. But if we're looking for joy, and we don't even really know what the difference between joy and happiness is, and there is a difference. Happiness can be dependent on your circumstances. Joy has nothing to do with your circumstances. You can be in the worst of circumstances and still experience joy, but you might not be happy about your circumstances. And so style, attraction, and sensual doctrine can all have a form of godliness, but they deny the power, for these are not the basis of the gospel, but substance, truth, and sound doctrine describe the gospel, which the Bible calls the power of God to salvation, and, 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 and who is the gospel? Christ is the gospel. And so the Scripture declares that Christ is the substance. He is the truth, and He is the foundation of all sound doctrine. He is the one that determines what is sound and what is not sound. That's why the Bible calls Him the chief cornerstone you build according to that cornerstone and your building is going to be square if we preach and teach and establish what we do as a congregation as churches according to Christ the chief cornerstone then we're going to be square Now, see that's a see some people that's a bad thing who wants to be square I don't want to be square I want to be cool right no you want to be square okay you don't want to be cool you want to be square you want to be lined up with Christ the chief cornerstone. First Timothy, you're there, right? Y'all found that cuz I read some scripture from it. Verse 16 says, "However, First Timothy 4 uh, verse 16, chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 4. First Timothy 4:16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, let me give you an example of taking a scripture out of context. If you just read that scripture alone, you might think that you're working for your salvation. And if you're not careful, you're gonna, you're gonna end up not saving yourself. Does the Bible teach we save ourselves? No. So this isn't talking about your eternal salvation. It's talking about now, this can't affect your eternal salvation. If you're not already saved, let me explain to you. Who is Paul talking? He's talking to Timothy, who is a true son in the faith. So he's not calling the questions, Timothy's salvation here. But he's telling Timothy something as a, as a shepherd over this congregation, as one who is setting in elders and setting in leaders. And he's saying, you need to set these guys in for a purpose, And I hope we get to the purpose today, but I'm running out of time really quick. But if we go back to chapter uh, 4, if we go to verse 1, look what Paul says at the beginning of this chapter. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And then he spends that whole chapter expounding all this. He gets to the end, down to verse 16, and he says, take heed. Verse 15, he says, meditate on these things. Think about what I've just written to you, Timothy. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, to, what? to this doctrine that I've delivered to you, to the Word of God, to, to the callings of God that's upon your life. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine... Continue in them, for in doing so you will save both yourself and those who hear you. From what? From deceiving doctrines of devils, from false teachings. Timothy was a true son of the faith, but many people he was preaching and teaching to and the men he was setting in place to do preaching and teaching and to make sure the doctrines of the church were right, their understanding of these things would have an impact on those who would come later to hear. And if they're hearing the wrong things, if they're being taught the wrong things, not according to Christ, they're being led astray. They're going astray. Paul said, meditate on these things, Timothy. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine because you'll save yourself from these false doctrines of demons, but you'll also save others. Why? Because you'll save them. How? Because you'll be leading them into the truth. You'll save them from the heartache, from the, the destruction or the discipline of God that could come because of false teachings. Now, I don't have time, but you can you can go through. And, and Paul even talks about 1 Timothy. Titus is another example. These are pastoral epistles. He's writing to these pastors, giving them instruction. And he talks about two in particular who had departed from the faith, and he turned them over to Satan for discipline in the hopes that what? In the hopes that they would come back to the truth. Were they ever in the truth? Who knows? If they come back to the truth, I believe they were in the truth. If they don't come back to the truth, then they were never in the truth. So now let's go back to... to, uh, Titus 1, I'm not going to read that to you except turn to Titus real quick. And I'm going to read chapter 2, verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Look at verse 12. I thought this was kind of funny. This is kind of... The height of the epitome of political incorrectness, Titus chapter one verse twelve. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons." What? What if the Apostle Paul was writing to the church in Taylor, and he said, "As one of your prophets said, Taylorites are liars, evil, lazy gluttons." That would be kind of offensive, wouldn't it? He says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. That's pretty bold. Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. How many people in the American church today will receive a sharp rebuke? There's not very many. But what does the Bible tell us to do? To fear man or to stand for the truth? You guys realize there's a transition taking place in the church as a whole right now. These are things that are happening. And these things, these errors, these... Things that are happening where we see people departing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. In some ways, I think it's a good thing. It's God allowing man and man's devices to come to the end of themselves. Now, we can keep doing the same things, hoping we're going to get different results, but I think it was Einstein that says the definition of of insanity is continuing to do the same thing, expecting to get different results. So we don't need more fog or more lights or different colored lights or different colored fog, right? What we need is the power of the gospel. We need the power of the gospel. Now, that's a real simple statement. And I know it's a much more comprehensive subject, but I've only got seven minutes left. So you're just going to have to be happy with that for right now, okay? But let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3. Look at this. Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And then in verse 5, he says, Now the purpose of the commandment. That word commandment links directly to that word charge in verse 3. It's not the word used for commandment when speaking of the law or the 10 commandments it's the word commandment that whose root is that word up in verse 3 who the charge i charge you and so we could say it like this now the purpose of the charge that i've given to you timothy here's the purpose of the charge to teach those to encourage those to teach sound doctrine the purpose of this charge is this it is love from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith the charge the purpose of the charge i'm giving to you is love from a pure heart a good conscience and sincere faith love from a pure heart what what is love who is love see we believe love is an emotion but what does the bible tell us love is a person You abide in love, you abide in God, for God is love. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Love is the chief manifestation of the life of Christ in us. And so love from a pure heart is God's love manifest as the fruit of His Spirit. Springs from a heart that has been made pure, made clean, made clear, by who? By God himself. You or I don't have the power to cleanse our hearts. Matter of fact, the Bible says our hearts are stone cold hard. And only God has the power to give you a heart of flesh. He, he's the only one. And that is the only heart, the new heart that God gives us, that's the only heart his love can come from. It's the heart he alone can give us. So the purpose of the charge is love from a pure heart. It's a good conscience. A good conscience is one that leads its owner to obey the word of God. This word good is linked to the, to the concept of righteousness. We need to think in a deeper way than we would normally think in our normal way of thinking. This word good is akin to the word for righteousness because we have been made righteous by God, where? In Christ. You're not righteous because you worked to become righteous. You're not righteous because you've learned how to not do some things and do other things. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. So God made us righteous by giving us his very own righteousness, right? So because we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ, our good conscience will lead us, where? In obedience. True faith will lead us in true obedience. It doesn't mean we don't ever make mistakes. It doesn't mean we never fall, we never fail. But we don't live in a fallen state. We don't live in our failure. We don't practice our failure. That's not what defines our life. We may become downcast, we may fall down, but I'm telling you what, the good shepherd's there, God is there to pick us up. Why? Because our heart. Because of our heart. Because of what He has done in us. So this is the purpose of the charge love from a pure heart, a good conscience sincere faith. If you have a King James, it says unfeigned faith. How many of you know what the word unfeigned means? Didn't think so. Well, Jolene does, but she was an English major and here's an educator, but most people don't know. Well, it does mean sincere. It's an interesting word. It's a word that that speaks of an actor. So in the Greek theater, you had actors and they come out in their, they're masked. They have a mask on, they have a costume on. They, they have, are pretending to be someone they're really not. What Paul is saying is the purpose of the charge, the purpose of sound doctrine, the purpose of the word of God, the reason it is so important for us to hold to the truth is because if we don't, that is the only way, holding to the truth, that truth, that power of the gospel is the only way that we can come into a unfeigned A real, a sincere faith. Not an imposter. You know, there are a lot of people that come to church every week and they have a mask of faith on. And they think, or maybe they they believe they're in faith because they came to a church building. Coming to the church building doesn't do anything for you in terms of getting you into real faith. Now, it's a good thing to come, but we again, we need to understand why we come, why God commands us to come. But we don't just come because God commanded us to come. You can do that all your life and get nothing out of it. Why do you think so many people are leaving the faith? Because they've come for all of their lives and got nothing out of it. Many of them came simply because their parents made them come. And when mom and dad don't have power over me anymore, guess what? I'm not going to go because I got nothing out of it because it wasn't real to me. Well, it wasn't fun for me. It wasn't entertaining for me. It wasn't relevant. I mean, we can make the list. And that might be because we focused on the wrong things instead of focusing on what the Bible says is the power to truly transform and change a person. Lights and fog won't change a person. The gospel will. Now, I went and saw Pirates of the Caribbean, and I loved it. I've loved all of them. It was very entertaining... So I went to the movie to be entertained, and I was entertained, and I loved it. And when the next one comes out, I'm going to go see it too. Now, I'll just tell you this. I love coming to church because when I come to church, I I have fun. I enjoy it, whether I'm preaching or not preaching. But I don't come here to be entertained. But I find my joy in being here. Because I'm not coming here trying to find my joy here. I'm coming here because I have already found my joy. Or my joy has found me. I'm not coming here trying to get something. I'm coming here because someone has gotten me. I'm not coming here trying to obtain something. Someone has already obtained me. His name is Jesus. And if you're coming to obtain something, you're going to leave disappointed. unless you obtained Jesus and he obtained you while you were here. Sincere faith, unfeigned faith. It is faith that is not false, not wearing a mask, not acting, but sincere, real, and true. It doesn't come from out here. It comes from in here, and it comes from God. And I think it would benefit the church if we would challenge people more often to examine their faith. Is your faith real? I'm asking you this morning, is your faith real? Why are you here? There's various, numerous reasons that you can give for being here, and they may all be valid, but there is a chief reason that doesn't invalidate those other reasons, but if those other reasons are the only reasons, they're not valid. We're here because of him, because of who he is. Sincere faith. Are you wearing a mask? Are you acting? Is it real? Is it true? It is the preaching and the teaching of the gospel alone. The substance, the truth, and the sound doctrine of Christ that has the power to produce love from a pure heart. It is only the gospel that has the power to produce a good Conscience, it is only the power of the gospel that can give you unfeigned or sincere faith. That's it. This is why we are charged to teach no other doctrine. This is the charge Paul gave to Timothy. I charge you to charge those teachers that they teach no other doctrine. And the purpose of this charge, the purpose of this commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Those are the products, not the wages, not the works, but the product of the life of Christ in me and the life of Christ in you. You are, I am, we all are a work in progress so don't go looking at someone and comparing them to you or to somebody else or compare yourself to somebody else the only measure we're to measure ourselves with is Jesus Christ and when we measure ourselves with Jesus Christ we understand that he is the one bringing the increase he knows how to grow the tree he knows how to bring the fruit But we need to ask ourselves, church, is what we have real? Is it sincere? These statistics in some way should trouble us. But in other ways, they should not trouble us. If we understand that God is the sovereign. And if God is allowing what man has built, to tumble down and come to nothing, then so be it. That's what needs to happen. But if that's what we believe, and that is what I believe, if that's what we believe, we need to stand ready and be ready with sound doctrine, with substance, with truth. Because that is the only thing that is going to truly transform all of these people that are out there searching for who knows what. They don't even know what they're searching for. You've got people sitting in this building right now who don't know what they're searching for, but they're searching for something. And you might not even know what the answer is, but I'm going to tell you what the answer is. The answer is Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And you can look all your life in every place you can imagine, but until you look to Jesus, it will all come to nothing. It will all be futile. You will be like this guy. You will become one day a recovering Christian. Wondering why you're not connected to anything. It's not that you don't believe in God, but you just... That's not what Jesus died for. That's not the church Jesus died for. Jesus didn't die for a disconnected church that doesn't know what it believes and doesn't know where it's going. And that's not the church he's going to come back for. And the the process and the transition that's taking place right now is a process, I believe, of what Ecclesiastes says. There is a tearing down before there is a building up. And I'm telling the church, be encouraged. But be encouraged in the truth and look to the truth because the truth is the only thing that can set us free. Amen? Let's all stand. The charge... That Paul gave to Timothy, the shepherd over that flock, is the charge that God gives to us. The charge has not changed. The results that God wants to produce, the purpose has not changed. Love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Father, we ask today that you would, by the power of your word, by the power of your spirit, living in us, the Spirit of God that's in this world to convict the world of their sin of not believing in Jesus. Lord, for those that come week in and week out to churches all over this land who do not have a sincere faith, Father, I pray that you would cause them to be challenged. Lord, for those that may be in this building here today that come week in and week out and do not have a sincere faith, I pray, Father, that you would cause them to be challenged. Lord, for, for us, for me as a pastor, for all of us here, for fathers and mothers, for those in authority over children and over, over men and women and families, Father, I pray that we would be challenged to be guardians of truth, of substance, and of sound doctrine. That, Lord, we would look to you for the wisdom that we need. And we would look to you to do what only you can do to transform a heart and a life. Father, we pray for your church today. Lord, even in this, in this week which we saw a minister in this city, fall, in a congregation hurting. Lord, we pray for the church. We pray for men of God who are filling pulpits in this city even right now. We pray for your church, regardless of what label may be on the building. We pray, Father, for the church in this city and everywhere else. That it would heed the charge you've given to it. That we would examine ourselves and our doctrine. And that we would look to you, Lord. To achieve the purpose you have set forth. For your glory, Lord. For your glory, we ask this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.